Will you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, and Todd has some Bibles there, Lynn has some over here, and if you need a Bible to follow along, we would like for you to do that, so please get their attention, they'll get a Bible to you, so you can look at John chapter 1 with us. John chapter 1, if you're using the Bibles, the fellows are distributing. It's page 587, 587. Several years ago, a pastor friend of mine attended a conference out of state. It was on the subject of worship. Since in the minds of many today, worship is erroneously defined as exclusively music. As an aside, this is what is at heart when folks refer to the music portion of a service as the worship time, which in their minds is distinct from the other elements, especially the preaching. There's worship and then the guy talks. Anyway, since that's the way so many people understand worship in our day, the conference that my friend attended was full of the latest instruction on how to conduct music and the aspects of the music portion of the service. On the last day of the conference, they had a Q&A, a question and answer time. Someone asked the presenter, what is a good definition of worship? Incredibly, a man who for three days had been leading a conference on worship responded, well, that's a tough one. And he didn't have an answer. Now hear this. The aim of our lives individually and of our church collectively, is to express our love to God in worship and therefore to love what he has made other people. But you can't do either of those well, love God and love others, unless you have a knowledge of who he is and who they are. And as it relates to God, the more Christians know of him, the more and better we should love him. So one preacher has said it this way, in life... True education precedes true exaltation. Learning truth precedes loving truth. Right reflection on God precedes right affection for God. Seeing the glory of Christ precedes savoring the glory of Christ. Good theology is the foundation of great doxology. That's the order of life, he says rightly. And so it's why the mission statement of our church says the Community Baptist Church exists to help people learn about God, love Him and others, and live for His purpose. And notice, learning about God is first and first on purpose. Because if we're going to love this God and love other people, we need to know who this God is. Learning precedes loving and living. Now, to be sure, learning should not stand alone. What we learn about God must be acted on. We must love and live, but we can't love and live well unless we first learn. That's why we're going through the book of John. So we can know this God that we gather every week to worship and who we are to worship every day of every week and every moment of every day. That is why we have, as we've gone through this opening portion of the first chapter of the Gospel of John, which is about who our God is, these first 18 verses to some of you may have seemed tedious. 
because they cover some of the same ground. We're going to finish the prologue. That's what it's called. It's the introduction to the book where in the first 18 verses, John says this is what these entire 21 chapters are about. I'm going to give it to you up front and then I'm going to approve the statements that I've made. We spent time there because it is the heart of the book and it is necessary for us to know our maker well if we're going to love him well and live for him well. And thus the gospel of John, meet your maker. Because God desires and deserves to be worshipped, he has endeavored then to make himself known to us. Notice verse number 18 of John chapter 1. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. The invisible God has become visible in Jesus. The marvel of ultrasound technology allows us today to see what once was hidden. You don't have to wonder today if there's a baby in the womb of a woman who's eight weeks pregnant. And you don't have to wonder what the baby is like. You have pictures and you have videos and models and detailed physiological descriptions. And so it is with God. You don't need to be in the dark about God. He has actually come and pitched his tent in our backyard, as we saw last week from verse number 14. And he invites us to watch him and get to know him in the person of Jesus Christ. When you watch Jesus, you're watching God in action. When you hear Jesus teach, you hear God teach. When you come to know what Jesus is like, then you know what God is like. And so I invite you to follow along in the outline we've provided for you. For a message from John chapter 1 and verse 18. Where we're going to see that the incomprehensible God, the invisible God, has made himself known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we're first presented with a dilemma because in order for God to do that, he had to overcome some significant obstacles, chief of which is the first point in your outline. God is unapproachable. In fact, in verse 18, it says that the first phrase in verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. And it's emphatic. No one is able to see God. The reason no one has is because no one can. Let's remind ourselves for a few moments why it is that no one has, why it is that no one can. It's because the Bible teaches that we're separated from God by our very nature. At the heart of the human dilemma lies the distinction between the creator and the creature. John Calvin put it this way, God dwells in inaccessible light. We cannot approach him. So holy and so glorious is God that frail mortal creatures like you and me could not glimpse his glory without being stricken by that blinding light. You may remember that last week Moses in a foolhardy moment asked if he could see God. You remember that? The Bible tells us, Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Man is separated from God by his very nature. God is so far above us. He's the creator and we're the creatures. And further, the reason that no one has seen God, the reason that no one can see God, is because secondly, we're separated from him by not only our nature, but our sinfulness. The Bible tells us that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like our first parents, Adam and Eve, because of sin, were driven from the presence of God. It was sin that caused God to warn his people, the children of Israel who were encamped around Mount Sinai, not to force their way through to see the Lord or they would die. Exodus chapter 19 tells us. It was sin that constructed that veil surrounding the holy place in the temple in the tabernacle that separated where God dwelled from the people. Sin has always separated man from God. And unless that sin is dealt with, it will separate us from God for eternity. John tells us no one is able to see God. And then he goes on to say, therefore, no one, in fact, has ever seen God. Now, that's a curious statement. No one has ever seen God. You're saying, you know, I've read a little bit in the Bible. I remember thumbing through the first part. The Old Testament, doesn't it speak of men seeing God? What does John mean when he says no one has ever seen God? Well, in this passage, John chapter 1 and verse 18, where it says no one has ever seen God, stay with me, in Greek, that's the language from which it was translated into English for us, the word God does not have, as it most often does, the definite article. Most of the time when you see God, it will have a definite article, literally it will say the God. Here it does not have that. Instead of saying no one has ever seen the God, it says simply no one has ever seen God. And in Greek, when a word is written without the article, it stresses the nature or the essential character of the word. John is saying that no one has ever seen God in his true essence, in the fullness of who he is. When we take that and we analyze those Old Testament appearances of God in that light, We see that God always gave a dim, reflective glimpse of his glory. We've seen that Moses once foolishly requested to see the glory of God. God consented, but remember what he said to Moses. He said, there is a place near me where you can stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock, cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. God took on a physical form to appear to Moses, but he shielded Moses from his true glory. You may remember in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1 in your Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah describes a vision that was given him while he was worshiping in the temple. Here's what Isaiah says. I saw the Lord seated on a throne. He was high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Your Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And the word that's translated train in Hebrew most likely meant the hem of his garment. What Isaiah saw was the hem of the robe of the Lord. And so great was the hem of his garment that it filled the temple. And just this glimpse of the Lord 
seated on the throne was so vivid and so terrifying that Isaiah said, most of you remember, woe to me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What prompted all that despair? A glimpse of the hem of the Lord's garment. Now, will the frail creatures that we are ever be able to see God? Will the sinful men and women that we are ever be able to approach His glorious throne? Or must we be banished from His presence for all eternity? That's the dilemma. The dilemma for us is the fact that God is unapproachable to men. Notice the second part of verse, four, or verse 18, though. It tells us God's solution. It says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Even though God dwells in inapproachable light, there is hope. There is one who has revealed our God. He's identified for us as none other than Christ Jesus. We're told in this passage that Christ alone is the one who is qualified to reveal God, to make God known to us. Notice what it says. He is the one and only God who's at the Father's side. That line gives us three qualifications that Jesus has in order to make God known to us. The first qualification is his uniqueness. We said this briefly last week, but the word translated one and only in Greek, sorry, it's one Greek word, monogenes. Mono means single, one. Genes, we get genus or kind or category from it. Monogenes, Jesus Christ, one of a kind, the one and only, the unique one. The Bible's telling us that there is no man that's ever lived who is like Christ Jesus of Nazareth. He is both God and man. The unique God-man. And by the way, it's not he was the God-man. He still is the God-man. He will return as a man... Fully God and fully man in one unique person, the God-man. He's the one who answers the prayer offered by Job, to which we alluded last week in your Old Testament. When Job was thinking of both God and man, and he said, if only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, God and man, it is Christ Jesus. He's the God-man. And he's the one who's uniquely qualified to bring the two together. He's the one and only. Unless there be any question regarding the fact that he's God, the text clearly says in verse number 18 that he is God, the one and only. He's qualified because he's unique. He's the God man. He's qualified secondly because he is in fact God. He's qualified because of his deity. If you were with us a few weeks ago when we started our study through the book of John, you'll remember that the very first verse, John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. And who is the word? The word was God. The Bible tells us elsewhere of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. It tells us in Christ, all the fullness of deity 
that is God, lives in bodily form. My guess is that some of you, if, if you're listening, and I, and I sense that a lot of you are, that some of you are going, you know, I never knew that. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, you've heard me talk about that. But there are, it's, it's a surprising how many people do not know who Jesus is. And we'll say, well, I knew he was the Son of God, but I mean, God, really? And I knew God became man, but is he still God and man? And so I trust that as we get to know our Maker, as we know Him better, we can love Him better. We can live for Him better. And we can worship Him better. In verse number 15 of chapter 1, John, that is John the Baptist, to confuse matters further, not John the Apostle who actually wrote this, John the Baptist in verse 15 cries out, it says, John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, what does John the Baptist mean when he says this one who comes was before me? Is he saying that Jesus began his ministry before John? No. John the Baptist began his ministry first. Is he saying that Jesus is older than he? No, John was born first. John the Baptist is referring to the pre-existence of Christ. Christ did not come into existence in a manger. That was not the beginning of his existence. It was the beginning of his mission. He has existed from all eternity past. And this verse, verse 18, is one of many clear statements regarding the deity, the fact that Jesus Christ is, in fact, fully God. Some people try to tell us today that Jesus was just a good man. That he was nothing more than an example. He was a wonderful teacher. He was a wonderful example. He was a wonderful friend. He was an ethical man. We should follow him for all of those reasons. But friends, if that is all he was, then C.S. Lewis was correct. He is a lunatic because he claimed to be God. Or he's a liar and he's not a good man. And we're left with a stark choice. We take Jesus Christ as he presented himself. He is either God or he's a lunatic or a liar. And as such, he alone is qualified to reveal God to man. He's qualified because he's the unique one, the God-man. He's qualified because he is, in fact, God. Here's a third qualification we're given in verse 18. It's because of his intimacy with the Father. Notice verse 18 again. It says that God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Literally, that phrase, who is at the Father's side, literally means into the Father's breast. It's an expression of great intimacy. John, who wrote this, uses that same expression later in the Gospel of John. Some of you will remember the scene at the Last Supper. And John describes the scene and he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved was seated next to him and he had his head on his breast. Do you remember that? He was reclining next to Jesus. The very same phrase, who is at the Father's side. And this is a continual relationship of the closest intimacy and the closest fellowship. 
So who better to reveal the Father to man than this one who is unique and who is God and who experiences this intimate fellowship with the Father? He alone is qualified. Not only is the Lord Jesus Christ alone qualified to make God known to us, but it tells us that in fact he has done that in verse 18. It's not just he's qualified to do so, he's done it. The verse tells us that he is the full revelation of God. Notice the statement, verse 18 again. But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. It's the single one Greek word that's translated with those three English words, made him known. We get an English word from it with which some of you may be familiar. It's the word exegesis. Exegesis is the process a student of the Bible goes through as he studies the Scripture. In fact, if you go to Bible college or you go to seminary, you have to take what are called exegesis courses. So you'll take the exegesis of the Gospel of John, exegesis of Job, exegesis of whatever book of the Bible. It's the process a student of the Bible goes through as he studies the Scripture. It's a preacher's primary task. And those who do it right understand that exegesis is the process of, the word actually means, to lead out or draw out the meaning of the text of Scripture so we can make it known and make it understandable. And so the preacher studies the words and the grammar of the text and he studies the context of the passage and he compares it with other passages. He develops the flow of thought through the entire book. He outlines it. Sometimes he'll diagram it. And he does it all in order to clearly and accurately communicate the true meaning of the passage. Now, John 1.18 is saying this. Jesus has exegeted the Father. It means that he has led out all the meaning that there is to be made known concerning the Father. He has made him fully known. The Bible's telling us this. Do you want to know what God's like? Then look at Jesus. Do you want to see the glory of God? Look at Jesus. Do you want to see God's holiness and justice and love and his grace and his mercy? Then look at Jesus. He alone has fully made God known. Jesus has fully revealed the Father in a number of ways. I want to give three of them to you. And we have them for you in your outline. He's revealed the Father through... His righteous life. Throughout the book of John, we're going to see as we take, I promise, larger chunks of the book going forward. Not just one verse. You're like, we'll be here till the Lord returns. (laughs) Our next message, which will be in two weeks, next week we are privileged. And I guarantee you, you will consider it a privilege to hear from Dr. Doug McLaughlin next week. He will be with us. But in two weeks, we'll be looking at John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. Does everybody feel better? 19 to 34. But as we go through the book of John in the weeks and months ahead, we're going to see two words that are used very often. They are testimony and witness. Those two words are used a combined total of 47 times in the book of John. When you combine all the other New Testament books, those two words are used a total of 37 times. John uses those two two words in one book more than any of the other books combined in your New Testament. Testimony and witness. 
They identify the major emphasis of the Gospel of John, that there is a testimony, a witness being given. The theme of the Gospel of John is this. Jesus came to testify of the Father. And so clear and so full was his testimony, his witness of the Father, that he could say in John chapter 10, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He could say in John chapter 14, I and my Father are one. Jesus revealed the Father through his life. John records that for us in the Gospel of John. Here's a second way he's revealed. It's through his sacrificial death. Verse number 16 of John chapter 1 says this. Look with me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. And then what he means by that is explained in the next verse. Verse 17. For, because, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's saying this, follow. God gave the law through Moses. The law that God gave through Moses governed men and it revealed our sin, but the law could not save us. Now, to be sure that the law given through Moses was God's grace to man because God revealed himself in the law, though dimly. He did so in such a way as to make our sin known to us. But the law could not save. It simply brought us to the point where we recognized our problem. And doing that is a matter of God's grace. Because you can't proceed to a solution until you first know the problem. So God made the problem known as a matter of His grace by giving the law through Moses. But when Jesus came, greater grace is added. Grace upon grace, as John says, one blessing after another. You had the blessing of the law that came through Moses. Now you've got another blessing built upon that that has come in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus came not to just tell us the problem. He came to remedy the sin problem. And he did that by what he did on the cross. The cross makes God known. The cross reveals many attributes, character qualities of God. The cross reveals the love of God. Because at the cross, God gave of himself and he gave supremely. That's what love is. It reveals the justice of God. Because it shows us that God cannot simply wink at sin and let it go by. His justice compels him to roll our sin upon his son and punish that sin in him. The cross reveals the grace of God. Because God was not obligated to provide salvation for you and for me. He owes us nothing. But He saves us because of His grace. So Christ has revealed the Father through His life and through His sacrificial death. And thirdly, through His resurrection. One morning, one Sunday morning, almost 2,000 years ago. Indescribable power shook loose the cords of death and Jesus Christ came forth from the grave. And through the power of the almighty, omnipotent God, Jesus Christ arose victorious and today he lives as the eternal conqueror of death. He is God.
Are you guys convinced of that? He has revealed the Father fully. And the verse tells us finally, Christ is the final revelation of God. It's written in such a way as to indicate that Christ has revealed the Father once and for all. He is the final revelation. We will receive no more prophets. You know why we won't receive any more prophets? Because we don't need any more prophets. You remember what prophets did? Prophets spoke for God about God. But remember this. Prophets spoke for God and about God, but Jesus is the God about whom those prophets spoke. And thus he is God's final revelation. We will look for no more revelation. Christ came, fully revealed the Father, and he moved his apostles like John to record it. And thus you have the New Testament. Jesus Christ is all we need. And all of God's people said, Amen. I'm going to pray and thank God then for sending Jesus to show us what he is like. For giving us those words recorded in the New Testament and preserved for us these now almost 2,000 years. But as I do virtually every week, I want to take some time to invite anyone in this group who has not come to the unique one, the God-man. And I invite you to receive him. Because as we look at this book and we meet our maker, we see that our maker has become our savior. He's come to earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We saw a few weeks ago in John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who received him, it tells us in verse 12. To those who believed in His name, that's what it means to receive Him. You believe who He is. You believe what He did. You believe that He did it for you. And you receive Him then. To those who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. So if you're a child of God today, it's because at a point in time, You receive the one who came to reveal God to us. Our maker has become our savior. Now, how do you do that? You see yourself in what Jesus did. He's the savior, which means he came to save, to rescue, to deliver. Well, save, rescue, deliver from what? From sin and its penalty. So you've got to realize you're a sinner. What Jesus came to do, he did for you. He did for me. You realize that you're a sinner. You recognize there, forgive the grammar, there ain't nothing you can do to pay for your sins. If there were, it would not have necessitated God himself coming to die on a cross to pay that penalty. So you realize you're a sinner. You recognize that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for your sins. It is the only payment, the only remedy available. And you say, I need that. And my sin has been shown to me in me trying to go my own way rather than God's way. And that's what the third thing is. You repent of your sin. You say, Lord, I'm not going to make my own way anymore. I'm going to follow what you say. Sin is going your own way. Repent of your sin. You receive Jesus Christ into your life.
We're going to bow. Those of us who have done that are going to thank God for that. Are we not? But then we're also going to give you opportunity. As we bow, you can do business with God. At our church, we don't make, you don't jump through any hoops because the Bible doesn't have you jump through any hoops. So we don't embarrass you. We don't make you come up front. We don't make you give any money. We don't make you do anything. Except do what the Bible says. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You pray a prayer from your heart to God along the lines of what we have on the screen. And God will save, rescue, deliver you from your sins. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for these marvelous words from the pen of your servant, John. We thank you for how packed with significant meaning this one verse is. No one can approach you. In our nature, we are frail and we are limited. You are completely holy. You are glorious and we could not bear that sight. You have deigned from time to time in your interaction with your people to veil your glory so that they could interact with you more intimately. But no one has ever seen God. But God, thanks be to God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side has made him known. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for what he did. We thank you for moving upon our hearts so that we saw our need and we embraced the only solution for that need, the Savior, our Maker, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for the difference that's made in my life. I thank you for the transforming power of the Gospel. I thank you for the difference it's made in the lives of so many here. And Lord, we want that for others of your creatures. We want to see everyone that you have made, everyone that you allow breath, to use that life and to use that breath for the one who gave it to them. But outside of Jesus, we are all outside of relationship with you. Thank you for your grace in offering this free and fully to everyone who will respond. I pray that right now, There are some who are responding to the invitation that you give. Lord God, move upon their hearts as you did upon mine and many of ours. So that they see their need, their condition, and the only solution. And Lord, transform their lives as you have ours. And help them to know the joy of going the way for which they were made, rather than their own way, which has only made a mess. As a result, Lord, may there be further mouths to praise you for their lives to praise you. For you are worthy and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.